hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and this is Sea of Victory Live Elevation Worship. We're going to listen to the whole thing because we need this. We need this uplifting message, and we need it right now. Turn it for good. 
that's Sea of Victory, absolutely fitting words. Thanks so much to Dr. Michael Uphughes for sending that in. Dr. Uphughes practices in both Florida and Montana. He's a good friend. He's been on the McCullough Report. Overall, wonderful, wonderful doctor. Has helped so many patients, and he does. He's actually taking things and turn them for good, and it really fits. We've got a terrific show this week. I, I wanted to just play a full-length song. Many of you have been worried about my voice. I'm rebounding. Thanks so much for the uh, messages regarding concern. I've just had two back-to-back URIs, and I've been pushing it pretty hard. We spend the backside of the McCullough Report with a wonderful physician, uh, Dr. Denise Sibley, and I got to tell you what, you're going to really like her. Uh, she's a top graduate from University of Virginia who practices in uh, Tennessee. And she has come up with an innovative solution of providing ivermectin easily through uh, pharmacy agreements. And I want to go over this uh, on the backside. It's really a model for uh, future medications for patients with COVID-19 since doctors at this point in time so many of them have not gotten in the game to help patients get medications and get through the illness. Uh, this is a wonderful uh, example of how physicians can work uh, in the legislative and political realm and be successful. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only 8 seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulvidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure for me to invite to the microphone for the first time on the report, Dr. Denise Sibley. Dr. Sibley went to uh, undergraduate at William and Mary College in Virginia. She went on to the University of Virginia and uh, received her medical degree. Now, University of Virginia is uh, typically ranked in the top easily four public institutions in the United States in almost every category, uh, including medicine. She stayed on there uh, as a resident in internal medicine at University of Virginia. And then she went into practice uh, in internal medicine in Johnson City, Tennessee. And Dr. Sibley uh, became known on the national scene as an expert in COVID-19. In fact, if you were to call her uh, office, you'd hear on the phone message that she's an expert in COVID-19. It's so interesting that if you were to call any other large medical center, uh, if you were to call University of Virginia or where I went to medical school at University of Texas in Southwestern, uh, you wouldn't get an answer saying that anybody's an expert in COVID-19. So Dr. Sibley, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. I'm just honored to be on your podcast tonight. Thank you so much. You know, I also introduce myself and consider myself an expert in COVID-19. We're into the third year of the pandemic. And, you know, I can tell you if other people don't want to step up and face the illness and develop expertise, we must be the right people for the job. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And to have courage to go against the narrative. And, um, and I, I have a position where I am uh, solo, so I don't work for anyone. So I have a lot more freedom than most of my colleagues and I have, I feel like some courage to do the right thing. What I've always done for a patient that's sitting in front of me, or in, in this instance, a lot of time I talk to them because they're all spread out everywhere, but I do, I try to come up with something for the patient in front of me to do just like you have. And I thank you for asking me to join your COVID-19 group, the email group back I believe it was in November of 2020 when I also, uh, there was a rebuttal to the uh, JAMA piece on ivermectin and I joined in with that. And um, that's when I, I was brought into the COVID-19 email group, which has been fantastic 
learning and sharing of data. And that's one thing that the COVID, this whole COVID scenario has brought about what I call the old time sharing of information where we actually talk to each other. We used to talk to each other, call each other. Uh, we would discuss cases. We would share information. And with EMR and the isolation of the physician, that all went away. And I have just really flourished in this community. And we have a local little community here where we get together and we share what we do and we share what works. And I have just been invigorated by it. I, I really, I'm 62 years old and I'm not burnt out in medicine. So um, I, I just love the sharing of information and meeting the needs of the individual patient. Well, your patients certainly are uh, fortunate. Um, I can tell you, I testified on June 27th in the Texas Senate. And one of the things I impressed upon the, the, um, the Committee for Health and Human Services is the concept of community standard of care. And what I said is the community standard of care is established by a doctor or doctors in a community that find a way to treat a problem. And early in COVID-19, there, there was no, it's a novel virus. So we started out with no community care. And what I said is that in communities, oftentimes it was just one doctor who uh, stepped out and faced the illness treated patients and what that doctor found to be useful and to work became the community standard of care. That's how it happens with back surgery, with, with um, you know, various uh, cancers. And, and I use the example, many, um, for in many communities, a, a, a gynecologic oncologist would set the community standard of care for ovarian cancer. You, you, uh, yes. mm-hmm. I, I did a telemedicine consult with a patient in California, and he really needed an electrophysiologist. And so I, I kind of helped him search on the internet. It turns out in his community, there are two doctors. Well, I can tell you for his problem, those two doctors establish the community standard of care. But the point to the Texas Senate was the community standard of care is not established by the White House Task Force, the NIH, the FDA, <laughs> the CDC. Everybody sat back and thought, well, the government's going to decide the standard of care. No, it isn't. It's doctors, and it's doctors like you in the community that did that. So tell us a little bit about your community standard of care that in your practice that you developed early on in the pandemic and how it's evolved. Well, you know, I, I was in a large group practice when I came to Johnson City. And then after being in the business and executive function of medicine, I felt competent to go into a solo practice. So I was in a solo practice and um, in March of 2020, I um, started to receive calls. I received my first call from two people regarding COVID. And I knew that we had used hydroxychloroquine uh, earlier in 2003, 2005 for uh, SARS-CoV-1. And so that since I was well familiar with hydroxychloroquine, have given it to many, many patients. I felt that was a good thing to do. And I also had been sh- sh- uh, following some of the French data at Rayolt um, out of France, Marseille, I believe, because my daughter um, is in France and they were about six weeks ahead of us. So I was very interested in what was happening in Europe. And, and I was looking very hard at the data 
then, uh, way before it really came to the United States because of that. So I didn't really ask to be a COVID doctor, but, you know, when a physician um, is, is asked by a patient to, for help, and you're barraged with calls for help from desperate uh, or scared patients, and truly, you know, at some point, we didn't know exactly if it was a a, a truly life-threatening disease uh, uh, in the order of magnitude that they told us, um, I always would come up with an answer or something to do for every patient. I didn't wait for someone to tell me what to believe or what to do. I used what we would refer to as real-world evidence, which is actually, um, you know, something that uh, was kind of codified into um into the law uh, back during uh, 2016 um, uh, by the the FDA uh, scientists had actually written in the New England Journal of Medicine, real world evidence, what it is and what it can tell us. And they went on to say that, you know, this is real world evidence can be used when uh, a randomized controlled trial or a bigger study or just timeliness uh, prohibits, um, you know, a trial per se. So, I did like I do with any patient, someone in front of me. And oftentimes, um, you know, you're listening to a patient and uh, as I say, all their symptoms are running through your computer mind of diagnosis. And um, I would often actually pray that God would help me to find something that I could do for them. And uh, by the end of the visit and by our time talking, I would always at least have something that I could do or something else to study. And that's exactly what I did with COVID. I, I said, okay, we've used hydroxychloroquine. The French have used it. You know, it's safe. It's older than me. Um, I think that's safe to use. And so there I embarked. And from then on, it's been, I'm almost at 5,000 uh, patients along with some vaccine injured, well, about 500 vaccine injured patients and long haul COVIDs and various uh, things like that. So I feel like I have a good hold on um, the treatment of COVID. And I've listened to people like you who are very academic. And, um, you know, I'm not the academic, I'm the town doctor kind of person. But I, I did rigorous study. Um, I've spent thousands of hours uh, reading everything that came across the COVID-19, as well as everything else I could get my hands on. And actually, the day that the vaccine studies came out, at least December 10th is, is what I remember that I had access to the FDA protocols. I actually stayed up all night and read, it was about 300 pages. I stayed up all night with my highlighter and that I just devoured it. It was, it was as if, you know, this was a new problem and I wanted to help. I wanted to know, and I was taught the scientific method. You, you study and you find what other people are doing. And uh, you're certainly an academician, which I am not, although I was in AOA as well. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't, um, I, I'm not on uh, academic staff like you, but um, I try to help whoever presents themselves in front of me. And but, it's but, been great, but, great. <laughs> well, Denise, let me uh, take a time out and explain to the audience um, Patients get frustrated with quality of doctors and they get frustrated with quality of attorneys and quality of mechanics and plumbers. And, and there is a great range among physicians. 
patients need to know that uh, of the 300 medical schools in the United States, about half of them have what's called alpha omega alpha chapters, half of them. And they're considered the top half of medical schools have alpha omega alpha uh, chapters. Alpha omega alpha is the only medical school honor society. And most institutions that represents the top, it represents the top 7% of graduates from the top 50% of medical schools. So Dr. Sibley and myself are both Alpha Omega Alpha graduates. You know, that means that 93% of all the doctors that you see out there are not at that level. I mean, there are different levels of quality and whether or not someone chooses clinical practice or uh, a, a, a position in a medical school, the quality from the very beginning matters. The quality of the institution matters. And patients should shop for their doctors. They should ask their doctors, you know, are you alpha, omega, alpha? I think it's really uh, important. And the other thing you pointed out was taking care of the patient right in front of you, always having something for the patient. Today, I saw a patient who had eosinophilic myocarditis from some exposure to some organism in Africa. Now, I can tell you, there's no community standard of care. There's no guidelines. There's no government that's going to tell me what to do. I have to make some decisions as a doctor on what to do. And we see conditions like this all the time. I want people to understand. I saw somebody last week who was, you know, had relapsing Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I think I was the first person to recognize it. Um, It's not uncommon in our field, Denise, to see and handle things we, we just don't have the answers handed to us, right? Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And every day, and that's what I loved about internal medicine. I actually went into medical school and the very second day we had a um, surgical interest group meeting and I joined it because I thought I would be a surgeon uh, for various reasons. And um, when I got to third year, I didn't like the abrupt nature of the interaction. I liked the problem solving of the internist and the long-term following of the patient. You know, in some cases I've had four generations of a family that I've cared for because I'm old enough. Um, But um, I love the problem solving. I love to come up with something to help them and to listen. And I was taught at UVA, if you listen to the patient, they will tell you what is wrong. If you'll listen. And you kind of, you know, you've learned your medical science and I I consider it like a computer. It goes through, you are listening to their symptoms and it's going through your computer science mind and you're starting a differential in your head. And I love that aspect of internal medicine. I still find it intriguing and a new problem. I'll never forget the, the day I had a patient who came to me after multiple abdominal surgeries, consults, and he had this persistent episodic vomiting and would miss work. And I, I had no idea what he had, but I, I actually prayed about it. Uh, I'm a Christian and I found cyclical vomiting syndrome, which is like a migraine equivalent in your abdomen. And I used migraine medications. Um, I found that on up to date and um, helped him. And that was just amazing. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's just the, it's the ultimate internist wonderful thing that you do is to, to help someone and, and something you didn't even know 
existed and you, you, you find it and you help them. And I love that about COVID. So many people have, have been turned away. Their own doctors won't help them. And they literally call you in tears. I had uh, two in Alabama tonight that, that called me, of course, at, just right before I came on and they're in tears. They don't know anybody to help. So I, I love internal medicine and I love a new challenge and I love to help people and to calm them when the narrative is full of fear, of course, as you know. It's so true. You know, I have the same enjoyment. I work more as an internist now as a cardiologist. I'm very broad based and, and I'm just a year after you, Denise. So I have to take the recertification exams over and over again. <laughs> so I have to take them every too 10 bad, years. In, too in born one, one year earlier. I know. Um, so every, every 10 years in medicine, every 10 years in <laughs> cardiology. But a metric of our successes internally, in my view, is that our patients don't get hospitalized. I can tell right. you so many patients, I am finessing the drugs, I'm finessing what I do in the office, and they're not getting hospitalized. And yet right. when, I, when I see hospitalized patients virg- of other doctors, Virtually everyone, I think to myself, this this could have been avoided if they just in the office would have done this, if they just yeah. would have adjusted the diuretics, if they just would have. And so mm-hmm. hospitalizations are largely a byproduct of inadequate office management. And boy, did we see that in COVID-19. Correct. And an unavailability of the physician. So my cell phone rings, you know, all the time. And uh, at, and I felt like I was you, the old program MASH which was, you know, um, during war, I guess they had these little units where they took care of patients. I felt like I had little mini mash units all over the place. At one time I had 31 people during Delta on home oxygen. Some of them were getting home IVs. I had, you know, 10, 15 medicines. They were, I felt like I was running multiple mash units at home and they were all not really equivalent to an ICU setting, but it was, it was pretty intense. And, but yet the alternative, no one wanted to go to the hospital. In fact, they adamantly refused. And so I had no choice, but to go outside my comfort zone. Ordinarily we would have said, Oh, your oxygen's 85. You need to go to the emergency room. Well, in this case, I, I knew to get the oxygen. I knew what to do. It was just, you know, I got very comfortable and, and managing them and being available kept them out of the hospital and um, just, you know, just the, the joy that comes with actually serving people and seeing them to the other side and, you know, to, to have reunions with these people, you're just, you know, both in tears because you made it through and it was just, it's just been, and as I, I said in my letter to um, the American Board of Internal Medicine, this has been the hardest two and a half years of my practice, as far as time commitment, 365 days a year, seven days a week. Um, but the most invigorating as far as helping and the rewards of helping, especially when no one, well, I'd say 95% of the physicians won't help here. Um, I even had another physician that I used to work with 15 years ago refer a patient to me today because she's not allowed to do what I do. And this is over and over um, what I see um, because uh, of course I'm, I don't work for a big 
uh, corporation like I used to. But um, of course, there's censorship, as we both know, we're both involved with the American Board of Internal Medicine and our uh, board certification, which we paid for and we studied hard and we took that exam uh, and you've taken multiple ones. Um, but, you know, that I have the independence to um, to go and and what led, I think, to me becoming a target for the ABIM is I testified about 10 different times in the House and Senate in our state in Tennessee in February, March, and then appeared before the Board of Pharmacy because we were the first state, as far as I know, to have a behind-the-counter ivermectin bill that was that reached um, uh, the governor signing it and turned into law. So that was one of my babies. And um, I had another one, Natural Immunity, that made it through. Some of them didn't make it through, uh, but I, I, I garnered attention there that I normally wouldn't have had. Um, and I think that's what um, uh, got the attention of the American Board of Internal Medicine. But, that, but, it, but it should be in a very positive way. You garnered positive attention for doing something positive. Now, tell us about the ivermectin bill. What, what exactly went Yes, yeah, so, so the ivermectin bill in the state of Tennessee uh, we uh, have my my goal was to provide safe access to citizens of U.S. pharmaceutical grade ivermectin instead of folks going to the farm store or a tractor supply, which, you know, I live in a, a semi rural community and um, people would call me and say, I have this, you know, ivermectin at home. How do I dose it? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I tried my best, but it's I, I couldn't say, you know, what, what was safe um, as far as tractor supply ivermectin. But I did know that I could get compounded ivermectin. And so my whole goal was to make safe access for citizens. And it's a very safe drug. Uh, in 1987, um, it was FDA approved. It's been given for over uh, 4 billion doses. Um, it won a Nobel Prize um, or the, the makers, the, the developers of it, the inventors in, in 2015 for its safety profile and just how much good it has done for the world in treating uh, parasitic diseases. And so uh, for a drug like this to be so safe, and so we, we use the collaborative pharmacy agreement, which pharmacies have with um, the state, say for Narcan, they can give out Narcan uh, through a collaborative pharmacy agreement. There's other examples, but that's one that comes to mind. And basically it has a protocol that the pharmacist follows and a doctor has to be the sponsor of it. And a person can walk in to the, to the pharmacy and get their ivermectin and it's dosed according to their weight. It's a, a very, I have six documents. I've got I've brought 19 pharmacies on board under my name, which um, I think I'm ma mainly the person doing the CPAs because I was the um, the one that that really wanted to run with this bill. But um, and I've had more requests since then. Uh, it, it take but it's six documents that I go over very precisely um, what to do, and the pharmacists already usually have experience with it. And uh, that way, a person can go in and get their ivermectin, and it's safe, and they're getting the right dose. And I can be assured 
that they will have it. I always tell them to go ahead before you're sick and get your, what I call your stash of things that you might need because on the weekends, we have a very hard time finding ivermectin. We're, we're very uh, blessed to have one pharmacy here that's open Saturday and Sundays. The only day they're closed is Christmas. And I've literally had people drive four and five hours to that pharmacy on a weekend. So um, it, it, that was our ivermectin bill. It went live on um, May the 11th. And um, it's been just a tremendous thing for folks to, to feel like they can have ivermectin and it not restricted. Now, because I have a license only in Tennessee and, and the pharmacists, most of the pharmacists I speak with, they only have a license in Tennessee. So we can't really have mail orders to other states. Um, but for Tennesseans, if, if, and we had someone come from who was visiting from Japan, now if they're in Tennessee and they come, they can, ha- they can get their ivermectin, but um, it's for, you know, since my license, I'm, I'm over my CPA pharmacies and they can uh, present themselves and, and get ivermectin whenever they want it. So it's now, a wonderful bill. That's absolutely terrific. So under what's CPA clinical practice agreement, um, mm-hmm. Collaborative pharmacy agreement. Yeah, collaborative, where you're the supervising doctor. Now, tell us about the natural immunity bill. The natural immunity bill said that um, that natural immunity was equal to at least vaccinal uh, immunity and that you cannot be discriminated against um, because you did not have uh, the vaccinal immunity. Now, one part that was not covered by that was the CMS the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare um, be, uh, and the healthcare workers, because that was a federal program. We did not, it, it, it couldn't cover that um, because of the federal um, areas there. But that natural immunity bill said that you could not discriminate on someone who um, had, had either a doctor's um, letter that they had had COVID or they had COVID antibodies, demonstration of antibodies, that it was equivalent, at least equivalent to vaccinal immunity. And so that was the other one that got through. Now I had a let doctors be doctors bill um, that did not make it through. Um, and <laughs> funny, I mean, uh, funny enough, but some of our other bills had items in like my ivermectin bill. Uh, it includes um, uh, something of protection for the pharmacist and for the doctor um, against liability, um, to hold, hold harmless, um, because we're acting in the best interest of the patients and patients are voluntarily acquiring the medication. Um, so so Denise, let me ask you a question for the natural immunity bill. Can you give a practical example of, of how that would work in someone's life? Like what type of situation where that, would that apply? Well, that would be, uh, say, a, a, a business in uh, a business that would say, well, you can't work here um, because you're not vaccinated. And this would come into play that um, I have natural immunity. I either can demonstrate my antibodies or a physician has, has written that I, I have uh, said I have COVID and documented it. And um, that, you know, that would be equivalent uh, to having the vaccination. So it would preserve your employment, um, of course, except in the healthcare field um, where the CMS mandate still stands. Now, as far as the federal 
the federal workers mandate, you know, that's kind of been on and off and on and off. Our VA employees right now are struggling a little bit. Um, and of course, you know, the, the federal programs like the National Guard were, are having some uh, back and forth on that right now as well. But the, the private businesses, the um, governmental businesses um, that would be like you work for the city uh, of Johnson City or you work for, you know, the state, uh, they, cannot, they cannot discriminate against you uh, because you do not have the vaccine. So uh, that was my natural. It's actually, we, we evolved it into natural acquired immunity. It started out natural immunity, but we really meant acquired immunity. Now, now Denise, would it apply to um, college students? It should. It should apply to college students. It should. And, um, you know, whether, um, you know, someone wants to um, go into, I guess, um, how you would do that if, if you were discriminated against, you'd have to, I guess, file a lawsuit. Uh, many of our colleges have had exemptions. Um, and so I, I've had a lot of folks um, that I've helped with exemptions. Um, but yes, it should fall under that as well. Um, but, you know, now whether a business wants to do that um, and whether then you want to sue them, uh, you know, I mean, that that all gets into the law, <laughs> but that is the law and um, it, it, it is a law. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, a law, it's a law thanks to you. So well, it's, it's a law thanks to a lot of people. I was not the, the only person, but it was one I worked on. I actually worked on it during our, we had a special fall COVID um, called session of our legislative body. And it just focused on COVID. And I introduced several of the same, I didn't introduce the ivermectin then, but several of these same things were in there then. And and then we just kind of worked on them more. It, it this is the first time I've ever <laughs> anything um, legislatively, I must say, I've not ever had my hand in that before. But when you when you need to protect the citizens and you feel that um, the truth must be told and telling the truth is dangerous these days. But um, I felt like I needed to get involved, even though I didn't feel like I had the expertise as a as a I'm not an expert, um, except that I've treated a lot of patients. But um, I've, I, um, it, it's just been a whirlwind to get into all these different areas that, you know, for my 30 some years of practice, I had no idea that I would ever be doing what I'm doing today. And, um, and I must, I must give the credit to God that he's allowed me to even have, to be able to do it and have the wherewithal to do it and to study and to, and to, uh, develop um, what I needed to develop to, to testify uh, because um, I'd never done anything like that before. And well, so, well, you finished top of your class at a top medical school. You went to a top residency. I didn't expect any of this either to become a public figure, but it's so interesting how uh, really the COVID frontline, the frontline is really the doctors who see the patients before the mm -hmm. hospital. The hospital is the last line. It's really the frontline doctors who are now hailed as heroes in the United States. 
it's amazing how many of the doctors were really excellent from the very beginning. You know, Richard Urso down in Houston. He's yes. also, oh, he's, yes. He's, he's, yeah, he was yes. AOA top of his class. Uh, yes. Ryan, Ryan Cole went Ryan to the Cole Air Force too. Academy. Yeah. Yeah. So and Paul so, Merrick and Pierre Corey, you know, they both, all of those and, and John Littell, they all came and helped us um, in the, in the assembly. And it was, it was just so fun to get to meet them and to see just their earnestness of telling the truth. And, um, you know, for me, I've not taken any financial remuneration for any of my treatment. And really from the get go, I felt like it was a mission and, and I, I wanted no one to be able to say that I was doing it for financial gain. Um, so why else would I be doing it except that I love people. I love taking care of them. I love the truth and I want to help um, whatever comes about. And so um, that's been my platform. And, you know, the doctors that came to help us um, many, <laughs> it was just amazing. They, they didn't expect for you to even pay for their, hotel. Um, I mean, it, it was just, I was flabbergasted and, you know, this was early on. I mean, they can't do that forever. And many of them have lost their jobs and we did, we did um, give them gifts and things, but, you know, they came uh, just because they are lovers of the truth. And I was absolutely blown away by the humbleness of these folks. And I met you in December at the Chattanooga meeting and just, you know, to meet people who I high, hold in such high esteem and for them to be so humble and willing to help and um, just so generous with their time. And I, I couldn't believe it. And it, it really makes you feel like you're in a brotherhood of, um, of truth warriors. And that's where I feel like we are. It, it's, it's really, that's what it, it's a, it's a band of uh, truth warriors. And I love that give and take that we now have again, which was missing for some years. I don't know if you felt that, but you, you didn't talk in the doctor's lounge. You didn't talk on the phone. You know, you, you sent electronic record. I didn't go electronic records. I, I stayed with paper, but um, you know, it's just, um, it's just been invigorating in a way it's hard, but it's invigorating. I don't know if you under stand where, where that's coming from. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I had a similar course. I was, um, I haven't treated thousands of patients, but I've treated many hundreds and probably advised on thousands. But I've also, I think I've published now 57 papers on COVID, a whole, whole series of op-eds in the Hill of the first year, now a whole series of podcasts on this show in the second year. Um, I'm a frequent contributor on multiple national TV shows. I mean, Denise, I look at it, it's like, listen, I've done as much as I possibly can. You've done as much as you possibly can. We're both top graduates of top schools. Um, and now here we are doing everything we can for patients, developing a community standard of care, adapting it as more data come in, working policy to the best we can to help patients. And then we get letters from the American Board of Internal Medicine that says that we are under disciplinary review. Correct. Mm-hmm. How? Yes. Tell me about your, uh, I know what my emotional response is, but tell me about your emotional response after everything you described going on yes. for two years. Tell me about how you felt when you got that letter. Well, it was a belly punch. It really was. I was, um, I got, you know, a, a certified letter that I needed to sign for. And it was a, 
as I recall, it was a Monday. It was, it was dated the same day of yours, May 26th. And, um, I, I was, I, I never get certified letters. And so I opened it up and I, I just could not believe that, that what I was doing, giving my all in all, uh, for two and a half years, um, without remuneration, uh, would be considered to be, uh, as they say, um, I make a number of statements that are false and um, they went on, you know, of course, to, to say what those statements are and that I'm to be sanctioned under their disciplinary sanction and appeals process. I was, I, I just, it just took my breath and I had a, a friend here who was actually doing some work um, and I, I just, just about doubled over because I, I couldn't believe um, and, and what I wrote in my letter back, I, I think you had read it, but at the end, uh, when I read what the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, their physician charter, we were doing, you and I and Richard Urso and Ryan Cole and Pierre Corey and uh, um, Paul Mayer, all these people were doing exactly what their physician charter says. We were being altruistic. We were not uh, succumbing to the um, interest of, of the pharmaceutical industry or something else that might sway us. We were doing it without concern for our own self-interest. Um, we were committed to scientific knowledge and, and finding out everything we could. I mean, the physician charter of the ABIM, I had never looked at, but we were doing everything it said. Um, and then... For them to say that we weren't following the consensus um, and that we were going to be sanctioned because we were, you know, I, I was spreading false information. I, I, it just didn't even even sit with their foundation, um, their ABIM foundation physician charter of what we were supposed to be because we were being that. So it made no sense to me. Um, and of course, it's a direct uh, threat to silences and to sign and to and to send a chilling statement to any other doctor that thinks of of changing course and, and looking at the data to, to see where we are. It gives them uh, an immediate uh, chill that I'm not going to do that because look what happened to Denise and look what happened to Dr. McCullough. Um, and so. I, I think that what they are, um, they're practicing scientism, which is not science. Um, and uh, it's more of a religion of one narrative. And um, I, I told them at the end that they should be commending us instead of sanctioning us, um, which is a little bit maybe bold, but that's what I felt like. Um, you know, I've kept a lot of people out of the hospital, as have you and worked very hard, um, oftentimes in the middle of the night to do it and make, making house calls, going up into the mountains of Tennessee to make a house call to someone who has COVID. And I don't mind, I don't mind going. I, I'm not afraid of it. I've had COVID a year and a half ago and, um, I'm not afraid of people. In fact, last night, um, after we had a study, someone appeared at my door who had COVID it was about what well, was dark. It was getting dark. And I had ivermectin for them. So um, because it was Sunday night, but I'm not afraid and they should be commending us because we're, 
we are keeping the physician charter that they have on their website. Um, we have a commitment to honesty and to our patient's well-being and to be medically professional and to be ethical. And um, that's what I'm going to continue to do. Uh, no matter what. <laughs> you know, I, I'm of the same mind. You really epitomize uh, in my new book with John Leake, Courage to Face COVID-19. Yes. You, really, you really epitomize that. I've done the same thing. You know, I, I've made house calls. In fact, I went and saw my pastor when he got COVID and we patched together the medicines and I went over to his house a bunch of times. No other doctors would help him. People were coughing all over me. I already had COVID anyway, so it didn't matter. Um, and, and I got him through it. <clears throat> and like so many patients, I got him through it. You know, the uh, book uh, by George Fareed and Brian Tyson about how two doctors saved 6,000 patients. Mm -hmm. One of their chapters is just a monograph of their data, which is wonderful. They actually published their data of, of what the results were. That's the old timey way of doing it. You have right. your paper records. We have mm -hmm. had Yvette Lozano. She's in our book. She is like you. She turned her whole clinic into a COVID kind of mm -hmm. mesh unit and she treated patients, uh, paper records. And yet one by one by one, we're receiving um, heavy um, uh, <clears throat> efforts to censor us on social media, efforts on reprisal. And you're right, you know, we're spending our own money. I've testified multiple times now in state and, and, and U.S. Senates. I, mm -hmm. I, I cover my own travel costs. Um, I lecture all over the country and uh, and most of the time, you know, it's, it's, it's my time as a resource or time and money as a resource. And we're doing it to help patients and we're doing it to help the nation uh, in a time of need. And uh, we have examples now that are in the open that entities like the American Board of Internal Medicine or state medical boards, they actually don't want us to help patients. Correct. Okay. And that will result in hospitalization and death. Yes. That yes. is the ethical position we're put in. Do we lose our job? Do we lose our license, our board certification, or do we help the next patient? Mm -hmm. And it is such a challenge. You know, I think about, uh, I think about somebody who I scrambled for medicines over the weekend, a patient in my practice, she has congenital tracheal stenosis and she's had multiple surgeries. Um, and she has difficulty breathing just on a good day. Well, she's recently gotten COVID and she got in trouble uh, from a respiratory perspective because the mechanics are already impaired. And I really scrambled for uh, the monoclonal antibodies for the full court press on all the drugs uh, and, and, you know, basically have gotten her through it, but it's taken 24 by seven uh, coverage. I give all my patients, my cell phone, I answer all the calls when I do it on weekends I tell people if I can't pick up, I may be, you know, on TV, what have you, but I got to pick up. And I, a question I get all the time, Denise, and I'm almost at the point where I don't even want to answer it anymore, is why aren't more doctors like you? <clears throat> and that's the question I oh. get. And do you know what I say? Uh, that's the reason why I made a big deal about AOA. You and I are probably in the top, you know, one or 2% of all doctors in the United States. And we were from the beginning. This mm -hmm. isn't new. We were from the beginning mm -hmm. and it's not new. And I'm tired of, of answering why other doctors aren't doing anything. 
I, what I know as a doctor and what you know as a doctor is we know what to do for the next patient in front of us. And you know what? If the next patient comes in with monkeypox or they come in with an illness from Africa or they just come in with you know diabetic ketoacidosis, we know what we're going to do and we know what to do. And I have to tell you, I think these boards that have done these actions, that they will go down in infamy. And I have no regrets on what I've done from the outside of the pandemic. And I imagine you're the same. You're correct. I, I have no regrets. And my answer to why aren't other doctors doing this is that the costs are too high and they're not willing to pay. And, and I'm not saying cost medicine uh, uh, money-wise, but the cost of saying, oh, I may not have you know, looked at all the, all the information for the two last two and a half years correctly, or just the cost of changing your position or your pride. Um, and yes, you could be harassed, like we've been harassed. Um, and I've had a little bit of local harassment here too, but nothing like the ABIM, but, um, but the costs are too high for them to change their position. So they're locked in, um, they have their head down, they're not looking to the right or the left, because it, it's, it's too overwhelming to consider, oh, I could have been wrong for two and a half years, and what have I done? And to me, it's, it's a moral dissonance, uh, a cognitive dissonance, whatever you want to call it, but they can't bear the thought that, oh, for two and a half years, I have, you know, I have not done what I should have done. And, and to me, and I, I told this to um, some of my local um, folks that are higher up in the uh, medical chain. I said, the reason your doctors are burnt out and your nurses are not because the, um, the hours and, and certainly people have worked extra hours and it, it's been tough, but it's the cognitive dissonance that they're working under they know to do differently but they can't like the doctor who gave my phone number to her patient today because she couldn't do what she knew would work and you know if you operate under that every day I do not know how you sleep um I do not know how you live um so I think the cost it is just too great to change positions. It would, um, you'd have to change your whole, um, your whole life. And, and I'd really think if it's a matter of, of professional pride or something, you know, it's just a tag team. It's like, you're, you know, you're handing the baton to me and, and then I'm, you know, we're just, we're a team again. And I just love that. I've always loved that about medicine. It was, you know, we made grand rounds. We made rounds in the morning because we were a team. Well, and you know, we, we are a team. Medicine is back and it's, it's certainly vigorous and intellectually challenging and rewarding for those of us who are taking care of COVID patients, mm-hmm. uh, long COVID syndrome, and, and now the vaccines. Um, and I can tell you, we can sleep good at night. Yes. I, I think the doctors that have denied patients care and now are denying the recognition of these vaccine injuries. 
um, you know, I don't know how they can sleep at night. And I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen to their souls. I, I really don't. Denise, we're, we're going to have to leave it here. <clears throat> Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. I just, you're just a true hero. And um, I appreciate so mm -hmm. much um, that you invited me into your uh, email group. I've learned, I mean, I just devour everything in there and save it all categorized. And I, I refer to it so, I mean, I just really appreciate what you're doing for all of us because you have actually been our leader. And I really, I just can't thank you enough because I, I couldn't do what I'm doing without learning from folks like you. And thank you so much. Thank you for being a leader and, and, and taking the big hits. You've taken a lot of big hits. And thank you. Thank you for being a truth teller. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be on the same team. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.